Hey everybody, welcome to West Seattle Christian Church Online. My name is Worth. If you're new, welcome. Thanks for joining us. And if not, welcome back. Uh, we're going to jump right in today. So we've been telling this story of Genesis where God creates the world and sets it in motion and offers a distinct way for it to function. And then he asks people to trust the way he says that it ought to go. And there's a list of people that then don't do that and it doesn't go well for them. And then we come across this guy named Abraham and he's someone who will trust God's story and God starts working with him. And as he does, Abraham starts to get an inkling of what it means to be God's servant. So last week we covered Genesis 16 through 18 where we say we saw this little rivalry and power issues between Sarai and Hagar. And then we looked at the covenant God made with Abraham and we finished up by talking a bit about Sodom and how it misused power also. In that talk, we, we chatted about what circumcision was really all about, about those who are high placing themselves lower in order to raise up the low. And then God says to Abraham, if you're really going to let me use you, then what I really want you to be doing is I want you to be willing to level the playing field with people. So the original audience of this story are the Hebrew people who are hearing this from Moses. And the author is saying, it's not like back in Egypt where your value is based on how you produce. God is saying, I'm trying to make it like back in the garden at the beginning where I placed value on you because you are you created in my image. And this was a radical shift in the ancient world. And then today we jump into Genesis 21 and 22. So before we get too far, I want to let you know there is a reason why we're tackling these two stories together in Genesis 21 and 22. They are placed one next to the other for a specific reason. And normally they're just taught as separate distinct stories. But if you take, a, take the uh, authorial intent seriously, then you have to read these stories and then you wonder about them because what we see in the story of Hagar here is that it's out of order chronologically. We've already seen this part of the narrative in Genesis 16. So why is there more of it now? It doesn't make sense unless you understand that the Jews take stories out of chronology all the time and they moved stories around on purpose to highlight a very important point they wanted to make. So what is the author doing by placing Genesis 21 and 22 side by side? That's kind of the detective-y question we want to ask. So when Isaac is born, Ishmael is about 13 years old, supposedly. And then when Isaac is just a little bit older, Ishmael starts to pick on him. And Sarah figures this out and she's scared for Isaac. So she talks to Abraham and he ends up sending Hagar and Ishmael out into the desert and it is burning hot. So I imagine it's like as hot as what I experienced growing up in Arizona, like this hot. One summer, I was lifeguarding at the city pool. We normally had about 30 minutes ro of rotating shifts up in the chair, but we had to cut those down to 15 minute shifts one day because the high temperature that day was 123 degrees. We would jump in the pool before rotating up into the chair and we were completely dry within just a few minutes, if not faster. I mean, I drank liters and liters of water and Gatorade that day and never went to the bathroom once. So there's hot and then there's hot. So it's hot and Hagar puts Ishmael under a bush in the shade and then walks away. And this is what we read in Genesis 21. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes. Now, wait a minute. How old is Ishmael? He's probably like 15 years old at this point or around there. And so when it says she puts him under a bush, I don't think it means she was carrying him around like a baby and placed him under a bush. And it also means that if he is that old, he can get up and do whatever he wants. So what I want you to see is this is a problem if the story is chronological 
in terms of how it's laid down in the text of Genesis. So verse 16, then she went off and sat down about a bow shot away for she thought, I can't watch the boy die. And as she sat there, she began to sob. So she is distraught to the point of abandoning him for whatever her reasons are. So for all intents and purposes, she, she bails on him. She abandons him. Verse 17, God heard the boy crying, which is very interesting if you think about it. God heard the voice of the boy and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what is the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying. So it's repeated that God hears the voice of the boy. As he lies there, lift the boy up and take him by the hand for I will make him into a great nation. So anytime a phrase is repeated in Hebrew, you need to pay attention to it because this is how the Hebrews emphasize something of importance. Then we get to verse 19. And then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. So she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. Interesting that the story starts with an emphasis on Hagar, but as soon as she abandons her son, the emphasis kind of it clicks over to her boy and the narrative shifts to him. And at this point in the story, this is really weird that she abandons him when he needs her the most. And it's especially weird that she does this now because back in Genesis 16, verse 9, God promised her that Ishmael was going to be a great nation. So the question is, did she believe God's promise? You tell me. The other interesting thing is that when you have a crying voice, which is a theme in the scriptures, where God hears the voice of whoever is oppressed. For example, the whole Exodus story starts when God hears the cries of his people. So God when he hears the voice of someone crying, he always shows up. And the question is whether or not the people he's calling to partner with him are going to show up as well. And they don't. They don't always do that. Hagar doesn't show up. Now, let's jump over to 22 for a sec. Completely different story, right? Or is it? God comes to Abraham and he says, Abraham, I want you to sacrifice your only son. Yeah. It's that story, in case you haven't looked it up yet. God says, I want you to sacrifice your son, to which we're like, what? And we've talked about this in, other, in another series before, but I want you to remember that Abraham is still in the midst of this larger culture where stuff like this happened routinely, where people groups who were worshiping different deities or gods, they would sacrifice their children to appease the gods. So he would have known about this practice, which is maybe why he doesn't flinch. He doesn't even ask God why. He doesn't ask God how. Why doesn't he do those things? Because he's in the midst of this culture that did this type of thing routinely to keep the gods happy. And many of them required child sacrifice. So he's seen this kind of thing before. So he doesn't ask God how or why. But this is the child that he's waited a hundred years for. The one God said through whom the whole world would be blessed. And he's like, you want me to kill him? So Genesis 22, verse 4, On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance, and he said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he, carried, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father, now, before we go a bit further, what, what would it be like to be Abraham right now? He's about to kill his only child with a knife. Uh, the child who's a miracle. And if you're Abraham, how do you feel? What's going through your head? What are you thinking in that moment? And I would wager 
he's trying to distract himself with anything, trying to figure out a way where he doesn't have to have this happen or to stall anything other than what he's about to do. And his son says, Dad? And he's like, yes, my son. And in the Hebrew, he says, Hineni, Hineni, here I am. And what I want you to see is that when Isaac is like, what's going on? In Abraham's son's greatest hour of need, Abraham shows up. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. And the thing that blows Abraham away in this story isn't actually that God delivers Isaac. And what I also want you to notice that Abraham says God's going to provide the sacrifice. What astounds him is that God provides the ram for the sacrifice. And that's the name that he gives God. I'm going to give God a new name after this. Why? Because I'm literally like flabbergasted that he has provided the sacrifice. And while the rest of the gods out there in the world just take and take, we have a God who shows up and provides. That's the lesson God has been teaching him for all these years. Now, this is why I drew your attention to the chronology of these stories and how they are placed side by side. Both stories are about parents and children, and both of their kids are in need. Even though the situations are different, their kids are in need. So when we see stories that look similar, we ought to ask whether or not they are connected. And in fact, there are some really specific similarities between these two stories. First, both stories start with the phrase, early in the morning. Second, both parents set supplies on their kids' shoulders. Three, Hagar puts her boy under the brush and Abraham puts his boy over the brush. Four, Hagar looks up to see a well and Abraham looks up to see a ram. And fifth, both stories end with a covenant. Now, if we only had one of these things side by side, it's not very suspicious. We'd be like, okay, whatever. But five of these similarities when placed side by side should make us want to look deeper. And if you've been with us for a few weeks, you probably guessed by now in terms of the Hebrew structure here in, in the wording of the Hebrew, both stories form a chiasm. And the treasure in the middle of the chiasm, the center point of the Abraham and Isaac story is when Abraham says this, here I am. Hineni. Why is that phrase so important to God? I think it's because a person if a person is willing to show up for other people, then God is willing to work with them and willing to work through them. And there are lots of examples of this in Scripture, and I just want to, want to show you a few of them. Look at what Abraham says in Genesis 22, verse 1. Sometime later, God tested Abraham, and he said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied, Hineni. At the end of the story, right before the ram shows up in verse 11, it says, but the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Here I am, he replied. And God repeats Abraham's name in that, in that situation as well, which is also very interesting scripturally. Names are repeated like this only seven times in the Bible, four times in the Old Testament, three times in the New Testament. God says it four times in the Old Testament, and Jesus says it three times in the New Testament. And every single time when someone's name is repeated like that, Abraham, Abraham, they get a radical shift in their purpose and in their identity and in their mission. Their purpose and their identity and their mission change. So anytime we see this, God is about to do something radically new and different with a person. And every time it hangs on this one phrase, Hineni. God has shown up in the world 
and he's already working for redemption in the world, and he wants people to partner with him, but they've got to be willing to show up alongside him. Here's a few more examples. Genesis, in Genesis 31, we see Jacob, who, by the way, also gets his name repeated and who also says, Hineni. Exodus chapter 3, when Moses sees the burning bush, and what blows his mind is that the bush is not turning to ash, even though it's on fire. God says, Moses, Moses. And Moses says, Hineni, here I am. 1 Samuel 3 is a funny one. The Lord calls to Samuel four times he calls to him in this story. Each time, Samuel thinks it's the priest, the high priest Eli talking to him. And finally, Eli, Eli gets it and he says, Sam, pay attention. God's trying to speak to you. And then at that point, when Sam understands that it could be God talking to him, God then repeats his name and says, Samuel, Samuel. Once, once Sam knows that it is God, God shows up and radically changes his trajectory. And then in Isaiah 6, it says this, And I heard the voice of the Lord say, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am, send me. Hineni. And last but not least, there's a really primary example in the New Testament as well in Acts chapter 9, the story of Ananias who lives in Damascus. Saul has just been on the road to Damascus and he encounters the voice of Jesus speaking to him who says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? His identity and his purpose and his mission, they shift radically in radical ways after that. Paul goes to Damascus and God tells Ananias that he needs to talk with Saul and Ananias says, Hineni, here I am. So this statement, Hineni, it's basically a prerequisite for God using people. But here's the point. It's not whether or not God shows up because he always shows up. It's whether or not we will show up. It's whether or not you and I will show up. Centuries later, the writer of Hebrews is writing about this story that we've just talked about, about Abraham and Isaac in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 through 19. And it says this, By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, It is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned, the God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. What's the point? I'd say it's this, that being able to stand in the midst of hard things, messy life, tragedies, and still ask God to show up. And when he shows up in the midst of that, you are still able to say, here I am, Hineni. The Hineni kind of faith comes from who you really believe your God is. Abraham has a particular understanding about God and his faith enables him in the midst of something unbelievable, unbelievably hard to stand there and say, God, I believe you will show up and I will trust in that until you do show up. And when God does show up, Abraham says, here I am because God, God is going to show up. He is. And the question is, will we, will we show up? So here's another question that's very much related. Do you believe in Jesus's resurrection, that God did a miracle in raising Jesus from the dead? And what I want to say to you as a follow-up to that is this, be careful how you answer that question, especially if you've been in church for a long time, been following Jesus for a long time. I wanna come at that question by sharing another story to make a point, which comes from Matthew 14. Matthew 14 contains the account of 
Jesus feeding 5,000 men plus women and children. And many of you are familiar with this story. Everyone forgot their lunch and they bring up, bring this kid up to Jesus because he's got five loaves of bread and two fish. And Jesus multiplies it and everyone eats. Everyone eats. And then there are still 12 baskets full left over. The question is, do the disciples believe that Jesus performed a miracle? Be careful how you answer that because in the very next scene, it illustrates the point that I want you to wrestle with. Jesus comes to them walking on the water and they are terrified and they cry out in fear. Jesus says, don't be afraid. And then Peter comes to Jesus on the water and after walking to him on the water, he's afraid and he sinks. And Jesus says, he saves him first of all. And then he says, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? This happens right after he multiplies that kid's meal and feeds thousands of people. Did the disciples believe that Jesus did a miracle by feeding those 5,000 people? Even if they did believe it, what difference does it make if it doesn't change everything in their lives? What difference does it make? Because the very next opportunity they had to demonstrate their confidence that God had the power to take care of them, they freak out. They lose it. And that takes us back to the question I just asked a few minutes ago. Do you believe that God did a miracle in raising Jesus from the dead? Do you believe in the resurrection? And if you do, that's great. But what difference does it make if it doesn't change anything? You see, we can talk about the power of resurrection all day long, but if it doesn't filter into our life and work itself out every single day and how we live and act, what difference does it make? Who cares if God shows up if we then don't show up to do the work alongside of him? Who cares what God's capable of doing in our lives if we won't let him work? It doesn't make any difference. Consider this. What if the part of the, of the struggle and hardship in your life is there because you expect God to do everything and you don't have to do anything? You see, God is waiting for people to say, God, I don't know what you're going to do next. I feel like you may have to show up in this impossible thing. Like you may have to raise some, something from the dead for this to work out. But regardless of what you're going to do, here I am. Hinene. I am available to you, for you, with you. I'm available to you. Whatever you want. Whatever story you're trying to tell in the world. However you're trying to put it back together. I've never seen it before and I don't understand it. There's no way I get it. I don't know how to do this without you, but God, here I am. And the question is, are you willing to go there? Well, to sum this up, I wanna give you a few implications. And the first thing is this, God shows up. He will show up and he is with us and he is for us. And, and that's really significant for us to get because if we're gonna be able to weather the storms in life, we have to stand with confidence that God is going to show up. I mean, if he isn't, then why, why struggle to even hang in there, really? The truth is that God does show up, and he is with us, and he is for us. Next, if you believe that the resurrection is true, then no one is beyond God's reach. Nobody. No matter how far away, no matter how opposite of his values, no matter how crazy, no one is beyond the reach of the power of the resurrection. And third, we need to live lives that reflect the presence of God. You and I have to be the kind of people who, when God shows up, we're able to see that and we're able to point it out and then we're able to join in. 
I have to be willing to stand in the ridiculous and crazy situations in life and not panic. I have to be willing to go home and actually act like Jesus with my family. I have to be willing to follow the way of Jesus and do the things he did for the reasons that he did them when I go to work or when I'm hanging with my friends who don't know him yet or when I'm interacting with my neighbors. I have to be somebody who reflects the power of God in my life because if it doesn't change anything in me, then what difference does it make? And finally, would people say of you that she or he is a person that shows up? Or would they say other things? Because here's the deal. God has been and still is showing up in your neighborhood, in your house, at your work, at your school, in the lives of the people you've been thinking about and praying for. He's there and he's working and he's also waiting for you to show up too. Will you show up? Until next time, I'm Worth Wheeler for West Seattle Christian Church Online. Stay rooted and deep in Jesus, produce good fruit, and show up, my friends.